um, at, at this point, you, you have heard enough of me. Um, so I will simply say this. Uh, I am going to give the final talk of the conference, and it is called, Why Do Some Thomists Scoff at Analytic Philosophy? Here we go. The story you are about to hear is a work of fiction. The names, characters, and events depicted therein are the product of the author's imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or deceased, or to actual events is purely coincidental. Such resemblance, however, is entirely welcome. Your time of peace and solitude comes to an end as Tad, the triumphal Thomist, drops his bag and takes the seat across from you at the table. It's not that you don't like Tad, you do. It's just that sometimes Tad can be a bit much. So, you doing anything interesting this weekend, he says. Actually, yeah, you reply. I'm going to this conference on Thomism and analytic philosophy. Ugh, Tad replies with a grimace. Why? Well, it sounds kind of interesting, you say. Tad snorts. It's not the cute kind of snort that Sally Fielding, your seventh grade crush, made whenever she laughed. This is a derisive, dismissive kind of snort. It's the snort a hog makes when its fa face is submerged in filth. Better you than me, Tad says, shaking his head. That sounds like a giant waste of time. Not wanting to get into what you know is going to be a losing battle, you redirect the conversation. How about you, you ask? Are you doing anything interesting this weekend? Yeah, Tad says, visibly perking up. There's this talk on the relationship between supposit essence and essay in Aquinas and later Thomists. I think it's going to pit Cardinal Cajetan against Cornelio Fabro. As Tad goes on and on, getting more and more animated, you smile and let out a sigh of relief. Conflict averted. Though not a real event, this story is real enough. Thomists, and not just the triumphal ones, do often scoff at analytic philosophy, sometimes even at analytic philosophers. My goal in this talk is to examine why. More precisely, my goal in this talk is to examine the philosophical reasons that motivate such scoffing, or at least that motivate the dismissive attitude toward dialogue, collaboration, and mutual engagement that such scoffing gives voice to. The philosophical reasons qualifier is important. There are lots of non-philosophical reasons that might motivate a Thomist's scoffing at analytic philosophy and analytic philosophers. Philosophical immaturity, intellectual insecurities, a habit of mimicking the dismissiveness of one's teachers and colleagues, past experiences of being bullied by analytic philosophers on the playground, and so on. I'm not interested in those sorts of explanations. What I am interested in are the plausible reasons a Thomist might give for thinking that engaging with analytic philosophy and its practitioners is genuinely a waste of time. Moreover, I want to limit myself to real reasons that I have in fact been given by Thomist friends and colleagues who have expressed varying degrees of skepticism towards such a project. 
So the plan for the talk is simple. In section one, I'll consider a class of reasons or arguments for skepticism that I call impossibility arguments. In section two, I'll consider another class of reasons or arguments, which I call impracticality arguments. And then in section three, I'll offer some reflections on which, if any, of these arguments succeed in raising substantive worries for the prospect of Thomist analytic dialogue. Section one, impossibility arguments. I'd like to begin by considering what I take to be the more radical of our two sets of reasons why a Thomist might balk or scoff at the idea of engaging with analytic philosophy. I call these arguments impossibility arguments because they take the following form. One, trying to do the impossible is a waste of time. Two, dialoguing with analytic philosophers is impossible. Ergo, three, dialoguing with analytic philosophers is a waste of time. I doubt that anyone on either side of the Thomist analytic, analytic divide will object to premise one. The real question is why anyone, in particular contemporary Thomists, might embrace premise two. Why would we think that dialogue between Thomists and analytic philosophers is impossible? Prima facie, at least, that seems false. Here's an argument. I am a Thomist. Mac and Sarah are analytic philosophers. Mac, Sarah, and I dialogue. Ergo, a Thomist dialogues with analytic philosophers. Ergo, it is possible for a Thomist to dialogue with analytic philosophers. The problem with that line of response, at least from the Thomist's perspective, is that it fails to distinguish between, on the one hand, a per occidens dialogue between a Thomist and an analytic philosopher, and on the other hand, a per se dialogue between a Thomist and an analytic philosopher. The idea is this. It's one thing to affirm that someone who happens to be a Thomist and someone who happens to be an analytic philosopher can engage in dialogue. It's another thing entirely to affirm that two people can engage in dialogue precisely insofar as they are a Thomist on the one hand and an analytic philosopher on the other. In light of that distinction, it might be helpful for us to revise the general form of an impossibility argument as follows. Keep the same first premise. Trying to do the impossible is a waste of time. New second premise. Dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. Therefore, dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is a waste of time. This revised form of the impossibility argument is no longer susceptible to the objection that I raised earlier. While it's true that Mac is an analytic philosopher, and it's true that I dialogue with Mac, it does not follow that I dialogue with Mac as an analytic philosopher, i.e. that whenever I dialogue with Mac, I dialogue with an analytic philosopher as such. Maybe my dialogue with Mac is possible because deep down, Mac is really a Thomist. Or, if that requires too great a suspension of disbelief, maybe I'm able to dialogue with Mac because there's some tiny corner of Mac's mind where he gives himself the freedom to just worry that maybe David Lewis wasn't right about everything. And no matter how small that territory in Mac's mental landscape may be, it's enough for me to get a foothold and to serve as a kind of common ground meeting point between the two of us. 
Okay, so we've got this stronger version of the impossibility argument. But we should still be wondering why a Thomist might think that premise two is true. What positive reasons are there for a Thomist to think that dialogue with analytic philosophers as such is impossible? Many have been suggested to me, but I think they naturally fall into two groups. We can think of these as two subclasses of impossibility arguments. The first I call no such thing arguments, and the second incommensurability arguments. A no such thing argument goes like this. If there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, then dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. There's no such thing as analytic philosophy. So dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. By contrast, an incommensurability argument goes like this. If Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies, then dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. But Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies. Therefore, dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. It's worth pointing out that no such thing arguments and incommensurability arguments are mutually exclusive. If there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, then analytic philosophy and Thomism cannot be incommensurable philosophies. Vice versa, if Thomism and analytic philosophies really are incommensurable philosophies, then analytic philosophy must be a philosophy. And so there must be some such thing as analytic philosophy. The lesson to be learned is this. While it's perfectly fine for some Thomists to hold that dialogue with analytic philosophers as such is impossible because they think there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, and it's perfectly fine for some Thomists to hold that such dialogue is impossible because they think that analytic philosophy and Thomism are incommensurable, those better not turn out to be the very same Thomist. If they do, that Thomist will be caught in contradiction. Now that we've got that out of the way, I want to take a closer look at no such thing arguments. Like the general form of an impossibility argument, the no such thing argument seems to have an unobjectionable first premise and a very objectionable second premise. The question we need to ask ourselves then is what good reason a Thomist could have for denying the existence of analytic philosophy? Here's one not crazy reason that I've been offered. There's no such thing as analytic philosophy because what we call analytic philosophy possesses no underlying doctrinal unity. Analytic philosophers are not all materialists or all dualists or all meta-ethical realists or all compositional nihilists or all anything else. Pick a topic, any topic, and you will find analytic philosophers who disagree about that topic. And even if you could find some topic on which, in fact, all analytic philosophers agree, that wouldn't make their agreement necessary. In principle, analytic philosophy is open to any doctrinal commitment. It's neutral, as Sarah and Mac have both suggested. The underlying assumption here is that what constitutes a philosophy is doctrinal unity, or at the very least, the underlying assumption is that every philosophy comes with some doctrinal commitment. While not unobjectionable, that assumption is reasonable. 
Thomists may debate about the merits or demerits, adequacy or inadequacy of the 24 Thomistic theses, but I would be shocked to find a Thomist who claimed that Thomism involves no commitment to particular teachings. Which teachings were seen as central has changed, changed across time. In the initial decades following Aquinas' death, it was the unicity of substantial form. But in subsequent periods, it has become the real distinction between act and potency, real distinction between essence and essay, or even the identification of God as ipsum suum subsistence. But regardless of which doctrine is seen as central to Thomism, that Thomism comes with doctrinal commitments is not really up for debate. An atheist Thomist is just a contradiction. The impossibility argument from doctrinal disunity then goes like this. If analytic philosophy lacks doctrinal unity, then there's no such thing as analytic philosophy. But analytic philosophy lacks doctrinal unity, so there's no such thing as analytic philosophy. But if there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, then dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. So dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. And since trying to do the impossible is a waste of time, it follows that dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is a waste of time, QED. Lack of doctrinal unity, however, is not the only reason one might hold that there's no such thing as analytic philosophy. Another reason that's been suggested to me is its lack of methodological unity. Initially, that might sound strange, especially in light of Mack's talk where he gave a methodological unity, uh, a claim of methodological unity for analytic philosophy. Isn't it precisely a concern for clarity and rigor that analytic philosophy is known for? Yes, but simply saying concern for clarity and rigor isn't enough to pick out analytic philosophy from all other philosophies. Scholasticism, too, was known in its day for clarity and rigor. In the classical Indian milieu, a concern for clarity and rigor has always been associated with the systems of Nyaya Vaisheshika. But as soon as we try to say something more precise, I think we end up overplaying our hand. For the method of analytic philosophy is not solely that of conceptual analysis or formal logic or any other candidate that might come to mind. Mack has promised us as a kind of IOU that he can chisel his way into one, but we haven't seen it yet. I maintain that's because there is no method of analytic philosophy, or at least there's no method that constitutes analytic philosophy. To see that this is so, just compare a random article published in a journal of analytic ethics to a random article published in a journal of formal epistemology. Their methodologies are simply not the same. Or, I maintain, if they are the same, this will only be true at such a general level of description that they will also be the same as the methodologies found in journals of Thomistic ethics or continental epistemology or Vaisheshika metaphysics, and so on. On the assumption, then, that philosophies are individuated by their methodologies rather than by their doctrinal commitments, we can construct an impossibility argument from methodological disunity. If, any, if analytic philosophy lacks methodological unity, then there's no such thing as analytic philosophy. Analytic philosophy lacks methodological unity, so there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, and now we're off to the races. A third impossibility argument comes from the view that 
It is neither doctrinal unity nor methodological unity that constitutes a philosophy or a philosophical tradition, but rather a unity of authorities. The idea here is that philosophical texts and figures can and do come to be authoritative for subsequent philosophical communities. This does not, let me be clear, mean that everyone in those communities slavishly follows the opinions of their authorities. What it means is that the quote-unquote authorities either directly or indirectly frame the questions that are raised, the debates that are had, and the answers that are given in the tradition that follows them. On this view, then, someone is a Thomist to the extent that his or her approach to and thinking about ontology or ethics or epistemology or what have you is directly or indirectly framed by the thought of Aquinas. Measured against this standard, analytic philosophy is not a philosophy at all, or so the argument goes. For there simply are no authorities understood in this precise sense of authority shared by all analytic philosophers. Sure, Frege and Russell were important and influential, but it simply isn't true that all the questions raised, debates had, and answers given by contemporary analytic ethicists, for example, are somehow framed even indirectly by the thought of Frege and Russell. And if that's right, then we also have an, imp an impossibility argument from authoritative disunity. If analytic philosophy lacks a unity of authorities, then there's no such thing as analytic philosophy. Analytic philosophy lacks a unity of authorities, so there's no such thing of, as analytic philosophy, ergo, etc. Thus, we have three distinct no such thing arguments, each one of which is taken from a plausible way of individuating philosophies. We could probably generate further no such thing arguments on the basis of further plausible accounts of philosophy individuation, but these three are the no such thing arguments that I've actually encountered in the wild, so to speak. And so those are the ones I'm sticking with. No such thing arguments, however, are not the only sort of impossibility arguments that I've come across. There are also incommensurability arguments. Recall that an incommensurability argument goes like this. If Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies, then dialogue with analytic philosophers as such is impossible, but Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies, ergo, dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible. In a way, we can think of incommensurability arguments as diametrically opposed to no such thing arguments. Where no such thing arguments view analytic philosophy as being so insubstantial that the Thomists simply can't get a grip on it, incommensurability arguments view analytic philosophy as being so substantial, so solid and self-contained that the Thomists can't break into it. By far, the most common reason for thinking that this is true, that Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable, has to do with an incommensurability of doctrine. I've just simply come across many Thomists who will say things like, analytic philosophy is essentially atheistic. Analytic philosophy is essentially materialistic. Analytic philosophy is essentially anti-Aristotelian, or so on. There certainly are plenty of philosophers in the analytic tradition 
whose atheism, materialism, and anti-Aristotelianism provide evidence in support of such claims. But, and this is to anticipate section three of the talk just a little, I have to ad admit that I find these comments not just uncompelling, but even a bit embarrassing. Still, they are claims that have been made, and they do constitute an argument. So it's worth spelling out that argument clearly. This is what I call the incommensurability of, uh, of doctrine argument. So if analytic philosophy is essentially atheistic, materialistic, anti-Aristotelian, etc., then Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies. But analytic philosophy is essentially atheistic, materialistic, anti-Aristotelian, what have you. So Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable philosophies. But if that's true, then dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is impossible, which means it is a waste of time. A second incommensurability argument that I've come across has to do with what we might call conceptual tools or conceptual frameworks. The idea is that even when analytic philosophers and Thomists happen to be using the same words, they don't really mean the same thing by those words. Or at the very least, the network of concepts in which the meaning of those words is embedded is so radically different as to render substantive communication between the two impossible. Here's just one example. An analytic metaphysician and a Thomist can both talk about essences. But the analytic, philosopher, the analytic metaphysician may well understand the essence of X to be all the properties that necessarily belong to X, while understanding necessity to be universal quantification across possible worlds, while understanding possible worlds to be maximally consistent sets of propositions, while understanding propositions to be abstract entities. But that means that the Thomist, who denies that propositions are abstracta, denies that possible worlds are maximally consistent sets of propositions, denies that necessity is universal quantification across such possible worlds, and denies that the essence of X is all the properties that necessarily belong to it, must mean something very different when he says essence. And as it is with essence, in this example, so it is with everything else, or so the argument goes. The result is that substantive dialogue simply cannot be had, for the Thomist and the analytic philosopher will always be talking past one another. This gives us the incommensurability of conceptual framework argument. If Thomism and analytic philosophy do not share a conceptual framework, then Thomism and analytic philosophy are incommensurable, if, uh, but they don't, so they are, etc. It might be worth noting that this argument may have been inspired by Alastair McIntyre, who famously holds that entire traditions can be incommensurable with one another, and that this incommensurability is, at least in part, due to the way that concepts develop historically within those traditions. If that's right, then we might think of the incommensurability of conceptual framework argument as standing to the impossibility argument from authoritative disunity in roughly the same way that the incommensurability of doctrine argument stands to the impossibility argument from doctrinal disunity. Okay, we've got five arguments 
for thinking that dialogue between Thomists and analytic philosophers as such is impossible. The doctrinal, methodological, and authoritative disunity arguments all argue that dialogue is impossible because there's no such thing as analytic philosophy, while the incommensurability of doctrine and incommensurability of conceptual framework arguments hold that dialogue is impossible because Thomism and analytic philosophy are incompatible. I now want to turn our attention to what I take to be a more moderate set of arguments, namely impracticality arguments. Unlike impossibility arguments, impracticality arguments do not rely on the strong claim that dialogue between Thomists and analytic philosophers as such is impossible. Instead, they grant that dialogue is possible, but hold that it's not a good idea. In other words, Thomists can dialogue with analytic philosophers, they just shouldn't. Why think this? Here again, I want to limit myself only to those reasons that I've actually been given by colleagues. We could surely generate further arguments a priori, but these are the ones that I can guarantee at least some Thomists have actually endorsed. The first is the reinventing the wheel argument. It goes like this. Reinventing the wheel is a waste of time. Dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such involves reinventing the wheel. So dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is a waste of time. I imagine that most analytic philosophers, uh, maybe those here in this room, will find this argument surprising. As a pure sociological fact, analytic philosophers tend to view their tradition as having made obvious philosophical advances. There are, certainly, numerous debates among analytic philosophers about the nature of philosophical progress, how it should be measured, what subfields can boast of making the most progress, but rare indeed is the analytic philosopher who thinks of him or herself as having to play catch up to some other philosophical tradition. Nevertheless, that is precisely the claim made by these Thomists. To see why, consider analytic discussions again of essence. From the Thomists' point of view, it looks like analytic philosophy initially abandoned or lost or forgot the notion of essence, then reinvented it in the rise of modal metaphysics, but still hasn't quite achieved the degree of subtlety or refinement characteristic of either historical or neo-scholastic essentialism. For example, the distinction between necessary accidents and essential constituents is rarely drawn by analytic metaphysicians of essence. And when it is drawn, it is rarely drawn in ways that the Thomist will find adequate. Another example would be the notion of distinction. In the 1950s, I'm doing something very dangerous right now. In the 1950s and the 1960s, analytic luminaries like Quine, Tarski, and Davidson championed the view that extensional distinctions are the only sort of distinctions the serious philosopher ought to allow. Thus, we can distinguish between angel, human, and aardvark only because these concepts extend to or include different things. But the 1970s saw thinkers like Lewis, Stolnecker, and Kripke recognize the need not just for extensional distinctions, but also for intentional distinctions. As my students will surely attest, I am the greatest pedagogue who will ever teach at the Angelicum. Nevertheless, we can and should distinguish between Father Philip Neri and the greatest pedagogue who will ever teach at the Angelicum, 
For though it surely pains my students to hear me say this, I could have taught somewhere else. In which case, the greatest pedagogue who will ever teach at the Angelicum would be someone else. More recently still, philosophers like Nolan, <laughs> right there, Jenkins and Schneider have argued for the importance of recognizing not just intentional distinctions, but hyper-intentional distinctions. We should be able to distinguish, for example, between triangles and tri trilaterals, despite the fact that all triangles are necessarily trilaterals and vice versa. From the Thomist point of view, these developments are entirely welcome, for they reproduce roughly three distinctions standard in scholastic logic, namely, one, a distinction of unampliated supposition, two, a distinction of ampliated supposition, and three, a distinction of signification. But in addition to these distinctions, Thomistic metaphysics also recognizes further distinctions that cross-cut and so give greater precision to those three, namely, real distinctions of separability, real distinctions of modality, rational distinctions grounded in things, and rational distinctions grounded in thought. For the Thomist, then, to say that two things are hyper-intentionally distinct is good, but not enough. We need to further be able to clarify whether their hyper-intentional distinction is merely rational and grounded in thought, merely rational and grounded in things, or perhaps even, depending on the theorist, real and modal. For more, the more examples like these that we generate, the more understandable the reinventing the wheel argument becomes. When a dialogue partner is unfamiliar with ideas, definitions, distinctions, and arguments that we take for granted, it's understandable if we should find that frustrating. And the more frustrating it becomes, the more likely it will be for us to think that the whole project of dialogue is a waste of time. Now, up to this point, I've been explicating the reinventing the wheel argument as my Thomist colleagues surely intend it to be taken. But in the interest of fairness, I think it should also be pointed out that the second premise of that argument is not limited to cases in which analytic philosophers are reinventing Thomist wheels. It also applies to cases where Thomists are reinventing analytic wheels. And from the perspective of the analytic partner in the dialogue, there will certainly be times where it feels like that is precisely what's going on. Now, I want to turn our attention to a second impracticality argument, one that also admits of this two-way perspective. I call it the new language argument. It goes like this. Doing something that requires learning an entirely new language is a waste of time. Dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such requires learning an entirely new language. Therefore, dialoguing with analytic philosophers as such is a waste of time. Though similar to the reinventing the wheel argument, this new language argument stands entirely on its own. Even if we were to suppose that no reinventing of the wheel were to take place, we might still think that the payoff of dialogue isn't worth the price of admissions. And the reason it isn't worth the price of admission, so this argument goes, is the enormous amount of time and energy required to learn a new philosophical language. And that's precisely what analytic philosophy is to the Thomist, and what Thomism is to the analytic philosopher, a foreign language. 
They have their own vocabularies, their own quasi-grammars, their own turns of phrase. Look. In Thomism, you can ask whether subalternated sciences share the same ratio formalis sub quo. In analytic philosophy, you can ask whether there's a difference between vagueness in transworld identity and counterpart theory. In each, these questions make sense. To each other, they do not. The obvious objection to this argument is that sometimes learning a language is not a waste of time. Suppose, entirely non-autobiographically, that you move to, for to a foreign country to take up a position as a philosophy professor, but you do not adequately learn the language before arriving. You will, entirely hypothetically, feel yourself at a deep disadvantage and resolve to become fluent. Might the same not be true for philosophies? It might, but the force of this impracticality argument is that it almost certainly will not. When analytic philosophers and Thomists dialogue, they are more like sightseeing travelers than like job-seeking immigrants. The amount of time that an analytic philosopher is likely to spend in the world of Thomism and the amount of time that a Thomist is likely to spend in the world of analytic philosophy is small. Too small, so the argument goes, to make acquiring fluency a worthy pursuit. Okay, now I want us to imagine both that we're dealing with an analytic philosopher who is fluent in Thomism and a Thomist who is fluent in analytic philosophy and that the dialogue between the two will involve no reinventing of wheels. Now, can we guarantee that the dialogue will be fruitful and worthwhile? Not according to the third impracticality argument. I call it the minimal common ground argument. It goes like this. Dialogue between people with little to no common ground is a waste of time, but there is little to no common ground between analytic philosophers and Thomists, so dialoguing with analytic philosophers is a waste of time. If we want to think of the new language argument as something like a toned-down version of the incommensurability of conceptual framework argument, then we can also think of the minimal common ground argument as something like a toned-down version of the incommensurability of doctrine argument. The claim here isn't that Thomism and analytic philosophy share no common doctrines or principles, but rather that they share too few for there to be any real hope for substantive dialogue. Perhaps the two can agree on the principle of non-contradiction and the law of excluded middle, but that won't get us very far. Just consider Aquinas' doctrine of the real distinction between act and potency. You don't have to think that this is the golden key of Thomism to recognize that it's pretty darn ubiquitous. Remove the act-potency distinction, and most of Thomistic metaphysics, natural philosophy, and ethics will go right along with it. And guess what doctrine many, many analytic philosophers find to be well-nigh impenetrably opaque? The real distinction between act and potency. So, that's the minimal common ground argument. The final impracticality argument I want to present is the time-better-spent argument. Just as the new language argument can work in the absence of reinvented wheels and the minimal common ground argument can work in the absence both of reinvented wheels and new languages, 
so too the time better spent argument can work in the absence of reinvented wheels, new languages, and minimal common ground. It goes like this. Doing something that keeps me from something better is a waste of time. Dialoguing with analytic philosophy keeps me from doing something better. So dialoguing with analytic philosophers is a waste of time. Unlike most of the arguments we've considered thus far, the time better spent argument doesn't actually deny that dialogue between analytic philosophy and Thomism can be in some sense valuable and fruitful. Despite that admission, however, it does recommend that the Thomist not engage in such dialogue. Why? Because there are more valuable, more fruitful ways that the Thomist can spend his or her time. In essence, the Thomistic proponent of the time better spent argument is saying something like this. Look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with dialogue or with analytic philosophy. I'm just saying there are only so many hours in a day. And if I've got to pick between spending one of those hours reading St. Thomas and one of those hours dialoguing with an, an analytic philosopher, sorry, but I'm going to pick St. Thomas every time. I just get more out of it. Okay. Section three, critical reflections. At this point, we've formulated at least nine distinct arguments for skepticism about the desirability and possibility of Thomist analytic dialogue. But what should we think about these arguments? Are they good arguments and not just in Mac's sense of good? Some, I think, are better than others. Though interesting for the metaphilosophical questions that they raise, I find the five impossibility arguments far less convincing than the four impracticality arguments. And of the impossibility arguments, I find the no such thing arguments less convincing than the incompatibility arguments. Consider first the impossibility argument from doctrinal disunity and the impossibility argument from methodological disunity. I'm inclined to give the same response to both of these arguments, namely, to deny the first premise and affirm the second. Analytic philosophy simply cannot be identified with any one doctrine or set of doctrines. It really is neutral in Sarah's sense of neutrality. Likewise, I am perfectly happy to admit that analytic philosophy lacks a unity of method especially if unity of method is supposed to distinguish analytic philosophy from all other philosophies. But I deny that either of these facts actually makes a difference, because I deny that philosophies are individuated either by doctrine or by method. I do, however, think that philosophies, or at least philosophical traditions, are individuated by authorities. So I'm inclined to give exactly the opposite response to the impossibility argument from authoritative dis disunity. In this case, I want to affirm the first premise and deny the second. I'm happy to grant that if analytic philosophy really did lack a unity of authorities, then there would be no such thing as analytic philosophy. I just also want to insist that analytic philosophy doesn't lack a unity of authorities. If I want to do that, I need to have a response to the example given in support of the claim. That example, you'll recall, had to do with analytic ethics. For it seems like many of the questions that are raised, the debates that are had, and the answers that are given 
in contemporary analytic ethics are not even indirectly framed by the thought of people like Frege and Russell, who are commonly recognized as the authorities, at least in my sense of the word authority, of analytic philosophy. My response is that this isn't a counterexample to the principle that philosophical traditions are individuated by authorities. It's a counterexample to the claim that Frege and Russell suffice for the enumeration of those authorities. An obvious addition would be G.E. Moore, whose Principia Ethica has exerted a huge amount of influence on ethics in the analytic tradition. Another name that probably deserves to be added is that of Henry Sidgwick. Once these additions are made, the principles would seem to be the principle would seem to be verified, for there are vanishingly few contemporary analytic ethicists whose work is not at least indirectly framed by Sidgwick and Moore. It's also worth pointing out, I think, that one of the virtues of this account of philosophy individuation is that it's graded rather than binary. A contemporary philosopher's thought can be more or less framed by some figures or texts than others. And so it's possible for contemporary philosophers to belong more or less to one tradition than another. I am undeniably a Thomist. But to the extent that my thinking about, say, meta-ontology is framed by Quine as well as Aquinas, then to that extent, I would count as an analytic philosopher. As such, if there were a contemporary virtue ethicist whose work was largely done outside the conversation that takes its cue from Sidgwick and Moore, then that virtue ethicist would, by my lights, count as largely non-analytic. And to the extent to which he or she is, uh, sorry, and the extent to which he or she is analytic will be precisely the extent to which his or her work does enter into that conversation framed by those figures. What about the two incommensurability arguments? As I indicated in section one, I find the incommensurability of doctrine argument deeply unimpressive. This is because I'm inclined to think that its first premise is false, and I'm absolutely certain that its second premise is false. Analytic philosophy is not essentially atheistic, materialistic, anti-Aristotelian, or what have you. Some of its formative figures may have been, but that doesn't matter, especially in light of the account of philosophy individuation that I just gave. As to the incommensurability of conceptual framework argument, I think we need to distinguish both the first premise and the second. If not sharing a conceptual framework means having no conceptual overlap whatsoever, then I affirm the first premise and deny the second. If not sharing a conceptual framework means not having all the same concepts, then I deny the first and affirm the second. This is because I consider both Thomism and analytic philosophy to be sub-traditions within the broader tradition of Western philosophy as a whole. And insofar as they remain part of that broader tradition, they are bound to have some conceptual overlap. They all belong to one uber frame. Thus far, I've argued that there is no such there, that there is such a thing as analytic philosophy, I've assumed that there is such a thing as Thomism, 
and I've affirmed that the two are not so separate and opposed as to make it impossible for practitioners of one to interact with practitioners of the other. But the possibility of interaction is one thing. The possibility of fruitful interaction is another. And that brings us to the impracticality arguments. My problem with both the reinventing the wheel argument and the new language argument is the first premise. When the wheel in question is a fundamental philosophical definition, a key philosophical distinction, or a crucial philosophical argument, then it's actually very important for us to reinvent wheels. We need to return again and again to our foundations and starting points. And if we can do that in the context where we are both reminding ourselves of the importance of these ideas and communicating what we take that importance to be to someone else for whom it is new, that's all the better. And I think something similar is true for learning a new philosophical language. We don't need to achieve fluency in order to learn how someone in a different tradition would go about saying something or another. And learning to translate back and forth, even if it's just a little bit, isn't just a valuable tool for dialogue. It's also something that enriches our understanding of our own tradition of thought. With respect to the minimal common ground argument, I grant the first premise and distinguish the second. If there is little to no common ground between analytic philosophers and Thomists means there is little to no common ground between any analytic philosophers and Thomists, then it is surely false. If it means there is little to no common ground between some analytic philosophers and Thomists, then it is surely true. But in that case, the right conclusion to draw is simply that some dialogue with analytic philosophers is a waste of time, and that shouldn't be a threatening conclusion at all. After all, there are surely some circumstances in which even other Thomists would lack the requisite common ground for fruitful dialogue, right? I actually do love and get excited by the idea of talking about the relationship between supposit essence and, uh, and essay in Cornelio Fabro, Cardinal Cajetan, and Thomas Aquinas. A, a friend of mine who does Thomistic ethics will almost certainly lack the requisite common ground to have a fruitful dialogue on that topic. This brings us to the time better spent argument. Here, I want to deny the first premise and distinguish the second. The implication of premise one is that we're somehow bound to always make the best possible use of our time. And I think that's false. As long as we aren't using our time wrongly or badly, we're free to do with it what we will. Human beings are not machines intended to optimize efficiency. Okay. But even if you don't agree with me about that, with regard to the second premise, I'm happy to grant that it might be true sometimes, but it's hard for me to take seriously the idea that it's true all the time. Call me a Platonist, but dialogue and dialectic is part of a healthy intellectual life, right? We can't all be intellectual hermits. I want to end by making two final observations. The first is that none of these reasons for dismissing the project of dialogue between Thomism and analytic philosophy strike me as especially good reasons. Plausible reasons, but not especially good reasons. If that's right, 
And if dismissing something without especially good reason is a sign of intellectual immaturity, then we've indirectly proven that Thomists who dismiss the project of dialogue with analytic philosophy are being intellectually immature. They are, if you'll allow me to circle back to the story I started with, being little tads. Nevertheless, I want to end by affirming that there is something right about the worry that's been expressed or the worries that have been expressed, even if they have been expressed immaturely. No one is obligated to engage in dialogue. So if there are Thomists who just want to read Aquinas and analytic philosophers who just want to read Lewis, let them. Moreover, even among those who are open to or interested in dialogue, not all will be equal. At least some analytic philosophers really will have little to no common ground with Thomists at all. Others will have little to no common ground with Thomists on particular topics, but more on others. And some analytic philosophers, though very few, will actually have lots of common ground with Thomists on lots of topics. Obviously, the more common ground there is, the more fruitful the dialogue is likely to be. My hope is that the particular Thomists and the particular analytic philosophers that we've brought together for this topic have found enough common ground to make this conference fruitful. But I leave that for you to decide. Thanks. Testing. Oh, lovely. Okay, well, so thanks to the father for that incredibly stimulating talk. And uh, thanks to him also for a number of conversations leading up to it, which made what I'm about to say somewhat clearer. Um, I'm going to do two things by way of offering comments on that talk. First, I'm going to offer a couple of more scattered comments about particular details of the talk, which struck me both when I was reading the paper in advance and when the father was giving the talk just now. And second, I'm gonna offer a more broad methodological reflection on the motivations which might lead Thomas to be skeptical about the possibility of the kind of dialogue the father was talking about. To be clear at the beginning, I essentially think the entire talk that the father just gave was correct. So I'm not going to question the um, arguments that he gave in the talk for the most part. I'm instead going to suggest further kinds of thoughts from my distinctively analytic perspective. Okay. So first the scattered comments. Um, one thing that struck me when the father was talking about this initially with me is that it's not clear why we would care um, whether or not the person we're dialoguing with is dialoguing with us as an analytic or Thomist per se, 
or whether they're just dialoguing with us. There's a kind of picture that I got from my mentors many years ago when I was first learning analytic philosophy of how we learn philosophy. And this picture is, I imagine, to some people in the audience, somewhat sad and perhaps indicative of a beleaguered state within American academia. But the picture is one on which we just sort of get philosophical knowledge however we can. And there's no systematic methodology because that's impossible. We all learn that from arguments about this thing called externalism in the 80s. Instead, we just, we just try to acquire philosophical knowledge in whatever way we can grab a handle on. And if we get it from the, the carpenter who works on our street or from the post, post office person or um, from the grocer or from a philosopher of any stripe, it matters to us not. If that kind of thing is correct, then I suggest there's another kind of response to at least the first class of arguments for skepticism about the possibility of dialogue the father was talking about. That kind of response is the kind of sort of cheap response which the father gave at the beginning, right? It's obviously possible for there to be, for, for you to have a certain kind of knowledge caused in a parachutin's way by someone talking from a very different discipline than the one you're a part of. And if that's all you need, then who cares just the, about the fact that it has parochidence? So I'd love for the father to say a little bit more about that. Another kind of thought is that, I mean, obviously I have to defend the talk yesterday, um, but I, I was thinking about, so, so there's this thought, again, to, to sort of uh, recapitulate what I suggested, that um, analytic philosophy is either lives up to the standards of logicians or to say what I said in the Q&A as sort of vision, it's intended to be such that it could be reconstructed to live up to the standards of logicians. And the concern is, well, there are certain kinds of analytic ethicists who you might think are such that they don't satisfy that second disjunct. Their work isn't even intended to live up or to be reconstructed to live up to the standards of logicians. But I suppose I'd actually be sort of happy if there really were such analytic ethicists, and it'd be I'm an interesting sociological question to see whether it were, to say that maybe they really aren't analytic philosophers. So for instance, uh, every analytic philosopher in this room, as well as the father, went to Notre Dame, and Al Alistair McIntyre is a famous ethicist there. But I think McIntyre would be the first to say that he neither intended his arguments to be reconstructed in logical terms, nor that he was an analytic philosopher. Um, and so my, my sort of general suspicion is that the philosophers who didn't even intend for their arguments to be reconstructed in these kind of logical terms would also be such that they'd be happy to not be labeled analytic ethicists. And if that's true, then it seems like the biconditional asserted the other day still stands. The third and final of these kinds of scattered thoughts is about the father's alternative biconditional. And what was interesting about thinking about this biconditional um, which is such that, you know, analytic philosophy is, um, someone's an analytic philosopher just in case they have certain kinds of uh, authoritative uh, figures in philosophy, and that, that allows for the great ability of analytic philosophers. What's talking about this biconditional is it, it seemed actually like an interesting kind of, um, of analysis, which is called the cluster concept analysis or a cluster conceptual analysis. Uh, in analytic philosophy, of what it is to be an analytic philosopher. 
And there's a famous kind of concern for these kinds of um, cluster concept analyses, um, which are these kinds of modal counterexamples. So just to give an analogy here, someone might say that, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, someone is, is uh, Aristotle, just in case they taught Alexander the Great, uh, and uh, they uh, were Greek, and they were a student of Plato, and dot, dot, dot. And then someone might also say, oh, someone, someone was Aristotle, just in case they satisfy a sufficient number of those kinds of things. And that would allow for being Aristotle to be gradable in a certain kind of way. In fact, people did say this in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s. But there are certain kinds of modal counterexamples. So we might imagine that Aristotle didn't actually do any of those things, but Aristotle was still Aristotle. And then my concern for this, this, this analysis of the fathers is it seems that it faces a similar kind of concern, right? We want to say that uh, people aren't just actually analytic philosophers, but that also that certain people might be analytic philosophers. Um, and in particular, we want to say that people might be analytic philosophers even if, for instance, Sidgwick had never been born. Um, and G.E. Moore had uh, died at birth. Terrible thing to imagine, but I'm just saying this, the cold heart of analytic philosophers is motivated by these kinds of counterexamples. And if we want to say that, then it looks like the biconditional fails. Because again, we say that someone's an analytic philosopher just in case they have certain kinds of um, authoritative ideals. But it's possible that someone's an analytic philosopher who doesn't have those kinds of authoritative ideals. And we think that this analysis of what it is to be an analytic philosopher is necessarily true. And those three, from those three premises alone, there's a valid argument that uh, some, there's a contradiction. So we have to give up on one of those premises. My suggestion is the father's by condition might be one of them. Okay, so that's enough of those kinds of just comments on the talk in general. Now I want to take a step back and think about the motivations on account of which a Thomist might very plausibly be skeptical about the kind of dialogue the father was talking about. So what struck me when the father was running this, this talk by me, by me initially, is this is a deep analogy between what you might call the underlying motivations for a certain kind of uh, Thomist skepticism on the one hand, and the kinds of motivations on account of which people in analytic philosophy are skeptical more generally. So, uh, and Sarah's talked about this as well. Um, one of the things that analytic philosophers are very fond of talking to their students about is brains and vats. And again, this may speak, speak ill of American academia, but it's a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, you know, the classic way to formulate the brain and the vat thought experiment is just in terms of an argument. Maybe not the classic, but the way I like to formulate it is in terms of an argument. And there are different ways to formulate the argument, but one natural way, the way I was introduced to it as an undergrad years ago, uh, was as follows. Uh, one, if you know that you have hands, then it's not the case that you might be a brain in a vat, and therefore handless because you're just a brain. But you, you might be a brain in a vat so you don't know that you have hands. That's a valid argument. And 
its force is that it turns it's, it's, it's totally generalizable for any kind of empirical premise, which would be false if um, you were a brain in a vat. Looks like you don't actually know that kind of empirical premise or, or that kind of empirical proposition. The deep kind of analogy here is that you might think that the Thomist is reasoning in a similar way. So I won't walk through all the different kinds of arguments which the father gave, but so consider, for instance, um, you know, just the, the general kind of arguments. Um, if you can learn something epistemically important from analytic philosophers, then it's not the case that they might just be wildly misinformed. Uh, presumably, the, the Thomist who thinks that they analytic philosophers are wildly misinformed, also thinks that they might be wildly misinformed. And from the premise that analytic philosophers might be wildly misinformed, and the other premise according to which if you can learn from analytic philosophers and it's not the case, they might be wildly misinformed, it follows that you can't learn from analytic philosophers. It follows validly. So there's this deep kind of structural analogy between, on the one hand, the kinds of arguments which sort of paradigmatically motivate analytic philosophers to be skeptics, and on the other hand, between sort of this kind of broad structural argument which might motivate Thomists to be skeptical about the possibility of dialoguing with analytic philosophers. But my thought is that there's also a deep kind of concern for this kind of motivation for analytic philosophers to be skeptics. And the kind of concern, which we always give to under, the smart undergrad who asks us questions about this kind of argument after we introduce it to them in class, is the concern of self-defeat. So the smart undergrad tells us, I really am convinced that if I know that I have hands, then I, it's not the case that I might be wrong. And I really am convinced that I might be wrong. So, Professor, do I not know that I have hands? And we respond, well, hold on. How do you know the premises of that argument? If you think you know the premises of that argument, well, mightn't you be wrong about them? But if you, if you might be wrong about them, then it looks like by the standards, by standards analogous to those that you just employed, you don't know the premises of that argument. So again, taking a step back, the thought is, you can't believe in the premises of these kinds of skeptical arguments, because if you do, then you shouldn't. That's the kind of self-defeat worry that we answer uh, undergrads with when they give us this kind of thought. And my suggestion is that a similar kind of response might apply on a broad level to the kind of Thomist who raises this concern about the possibility of dialoguing with analytic philosophers. If you think, look, if I know, or if I can learn from analytic philosophers, then they might not be wildly mistaken, but they might be wildly mistaken, so I can't learn from analytic philosophers. The question is, well, how do you know that? And it might be the case, and I only float this as a it might be the case thing. I won't try to vindicate it here. It might be the case that the only way that you know that is by employing just the kind of sort of formally rigorous thought that I've suggested characterizes analytic philosophy. But if that's the case, then it looks like you shouldn't believe 
in the premises of that argument. Because if you do, then you shouldn't. 